All right. Yeah, I, I do want to tell you guys, uh, the guy who's coming here at the end of the month, Dave Taylor, um, you've probably never heard of him, but I was just really, really powerfully touched by his ministry back in the summer. I went to hang out with Sammy and Tiffany Yoder and Josh and Summer Tucker out in uh, Kansas City. And uh, they hang out with this guy. And I have never in my life, and I've been around some people who are pretty good at ministry, I've never in my life been around someone who is as um, just uh, anointed in ministry as this guy. And he's super low-key. He's the opposite of hype, which I really appreciated. He's incredibly low-key. and uh, But in terms of like the prophetic gift on his life, is just ridiculous. Uh, he prophesied to me for an hour and a half, just off the charts. Told me my past, my present, and then he told me my future. He told me my past, and it was 100% right. He told me my present, it was 100% right. And so I had some faith to believe for my future. You know what I'm talking about? It's really good. Um, outside of that, I'm just really happy to be back. I haven't been here for two weeks. We've been out and about. Last uh, Two weeks ago, I was preaching a conference with Jeremy Riddle in North Carolina, and that was great. And then last week, uh, the band and I, we were out on a little mini tour of the southeast, and that was great, but no jokes. Like, the whole time I was out, it just felt... It was good until, like, Sunday morning, and, and then I'm like, oh, I miss this place. Like, ah, you know? So... I'm really, really happy to be back, and tonight I'm going to wrap up a series that we started here uh, five weeks ago, and it's a series that, we've, uh, that we started, and it is, it is where we've just been walking through First and Second Samuel. Uh, have you guys enjoyed this so far? All right, cool. I'm going to wrap up the series tonight. I, I, really, feel like that some of the, uh, I really feel like that some of the messages that have been brought in this series are some of the strongest messages that have ever been brought at the Vineyard ever. Uh, so if you haven't heard them all, I would encourage you to go back. Not just because I preached a couple of them, but it was like as a team. Uh, it was me and Ray and, and, and Cliff and uh, Justin and Andrew. Just some of the, I think some of the richest teaching we've ever had here. If you didn't hear Cliff's message, message last week, then you must go back and download it. It was just so good. Holla. Cliff, holla. Right there. There we go. I loved it. I, I, was, I, like, I, was, I, I was like, I was with you. I was in my earbuds and I was with you all week, so. Awesome. So here's what we're going to do. Um, we're going to have a first and second Samuel, seven sermons in 45 minutes. Jesus, help us all. Uh, this is what we're going to do. Uh, I was going to go back and I wanted to, to preach a, a message just to sort of wrap everything up. And as I was going back to, to just review the books and read through them again, uh, I just realized that there's just so much really great stuff that we didn't cover. So we're going we're gonna to hit seven messages. We're going to do seven sermons tonight, hopefully in about 45 minutes. So we need to just, uh, we need to pray right now. Everybody needs to pray. Pray. Pray in tongues, out loud. Um, <clears throat> all right, so here we go. Uh, if you want to, why don't you turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 3. We're going to talk about young Samuel here for a few minutes. Um, the title of this message is, I'm Just Too Young. And, um, yeah, we're going we're gonna to pick it up right here. In, in chapter 3, in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, says this. It says, The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. This is the beginning of Samuel's ministry. And this is the atmosphere that Samuel was born into. Uh, Samuel, you'll remember, was the son of Hannah. Hannah couldn't have any children, and she prayed to the Lord. She went to the temple one time. She went to the temple, and she prayed to the Lord, and she prayed with, with such uh, vigor that when Eli the priest, who was in charge of the temple at that time, saw her, 
he thought, surely this woman is drunk. And it tells us a couple of things. It tells us that sometimes the Holy Spirit makes you look drunk. And then it also tells us this. It tells us that, that Eli, even though he was a priest in the house of the Lord his entire life, he was, he was not spiritually perceptive. Okay? Uh, but Hannah prayed with great vigor. And because of that, she ended up having a son. And, uh, and she ended up, she told the Lord, she says, if you'll give me a son, then I'll give him back to you. And she did just that. And she took him when he was weaned. So he was probably three or four years old. Can you imagine taking your three or four-year-old son and giving him to the priest? It's shocking, you know? Here's my son. And so he lives in the, in the house of the Lord and he begins to just serve under Eli. And this is, the, this is the spiritual atmosphere that he's born into. But one of the things I want you to notice is, if you'll look in your Bibles in 1 Samuel chapter 2, at, right at the very end, what, what happens right at the very end of chapter 2? Anybody there? Eli gets a word from the Lord, right? And it's a word of judgment. So, so what this tells us right here is it tells us that there's not many words of the Lord, but when there is a word of the Lord, it's a judgment word. And it's to Eli. And, and not only that, but we have young Samuel, and he lives away from his mom, and he lives away from his dad, and he's and he's really young kid, and he, he is living in the house with a priest who is not spiritually perceptive. Not only that, but the priest's two sons are buck wild. They've completely gone wild. They take the best part of the offerings, and they keep it for themselves. And when they find a pretty girl, they sleep with her, and they minister before the Lord. Are you getting the picture? Then look at 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 7. It's a few, few verses down. This is after Samuel, he's asleep in the, in the, in the temple one night. And he's, and he's just a young kid. Josephus says that he was 12 years old, but I don't believe that he was even 12. I believe that was just some keeping of the Jewish tradition there. I believe he was younger than that. So if you can imagine this, a six or eight-year-old boy asleep at night and the voice of God speaks to him. And from what we can gather from the scripture, it's an audible voice of God, okay? He has no idea what it is, so he goes to Eli and he says, hey, Eli, you called. Eli says, I didn't call you, go back to bed. And in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 7, it says that Samuel didn't yet know the Lord because the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. So the Lord's beginning to speak to him. And here's one of the things I want us to see. Samuel is young. He's only six or eight years old. He doesn't live with his mom and dad anymore. And the parents that he does have, the care that he's under, isn't good care. It's bad care. And he doesn't even yet know the Lord. And then God begins to speak to him. And he's going to use them. What's the point? Well, the point is this. The point is this. The point is that Samuel was tender, and he was away from his parents, and he didn't have many advantages. In fact, if you look at his story just real, if you look at his story just real logically and real analytically, everybody could we agree that he had all the cards stacked against him? No mom, no dad, bad spiritual father, spiritual brothers who take all the best parts of the offering, and they sleep with all the women, and he's young, and he's not met the Lord yet. And God says, I'll take that guy. I'll take that guy. So what's the takeaway for us? The takeaway for us is this. A couple things. Number one is that all spiritual, all spiritual giants begin as little boys. Everybody in here is called, to, do, is called to, to greatness. Everyone in here is called to do great things. And no one's, no one's journey with God begins great. It all begins small. It all begins in childhood. It all begins like a boy or like a daughter. It all begins at six or eight. It all begins insignificant. That's one. Number two, number two, the other takeaway is this. No one in here is too young, too alone, too oppressed, or too inexperienced to be useful for God. No one in here is too young, 
too oppressed, too inexperienced, or too, away, or too, or too far away from God to be used by him. The, 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 only, the, the only thing that God requires is a, yes, Lord, your servant is listening. Simple enough? So what's the excuse? Right? It's time to give it up and get on. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. This is where David is anointed. I want to read a little scripture to you. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13. This is all about when it's not easy. 1 Samuel 16, verse 13. So Samuel, the little boy who's now the great prophet in Israel, the little boy who's, who, who, who all of his words are upheld by God. The scripture says not one of them falls to the ground. The little boy's grown up, and now he's beginning to anoint kings. And it says this, it says, So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, this being David, in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. So here's what we've got. We've got David, and he's anointed with a horn. And the horn in Scripture always speaks of power. It's one of the main differences between the anointing of Saul and the anointing of David. There's a couple main differences. Uh, So David is anointed with the horn, which means he's anointed with power. Anytime oil is used in Scripture, especially when it's anointing, it's always a reference to the the Spirit. So at this very same moment, the Spirit came upon David's life. Before this, it wasn't upon him. But in this moment, it came upon him, just like the oil. And just like oil soaks your clothes and stains it, just like you can't... Can you imagine getting your hair, uh, putting it like in an oil bath? You could wash it, but it wouldn't come out, right? So David, David was given the Spirit. This is a visual sign. David was given the Spirit in such a powerful and dynamic way that it was the kind of anointing that it wouldn't wash off. And uh, so David was anointed with a horn, which means power. But not only that, but David was anointed in the presence of his brothers. If you go back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, Saul was anointed, but he was anointed in, in secret. Samuel said to Saul's servant, he said, go, go get up the road. I'm going to talk to Saul in private. And so Saul was anointed in private, but David was anointed in, in the midst of his brothers. And one of the things that speaks to us is, is that God was going to put David on display like no one else in history. Now, can you imagine being completely insignificant? David was the youngest brother in his whole house. And when the prophet had come to, to share a meal with the family, David wasn't even invited to the meal. That tells us a couple things. It tells us, number one, David was insignificant in his own house. And when the prophet had gone through every single brother, he says, hey, there's, there must be someone else. There has to be someone else. His, his dad says, well, yeah, there is. He's the youngest one. Go get the little one from the field. That's what he says. But he never said, go get David. So he wasn't even named, and he wasn't even invited to the dinner. He was utterly insignificant in his own family. But God says, I will anoint you with oil. I will anoint you with power. I will anoint you with the Spirit, and I'm going to do it in front of your brothers. Can you imagine what that would feel like? Can you even imagine what it would feel like to have the prophet skip every one of your brothers and then say, it's you? That'd be a pretty good feeling, wouldn't it? Um, everybody in here, uh, everyone in here likes to feel accepted, right? Um, it's, it's built into human DNA. We love to be accepted. Um, not only that, but we love to be promoted. We love promotion. I've had a few promotions in my life. It feels good. Anybody in here had a promotion? It feels good. Uh, anyone in here ever been recognized? It, it feels good. Um, has anyone ever had the sweet vindication of being passed over and then being recognized in front of the people you've been passed over? It feels good. It's a, it's a yes. 
Anyone in, ever, anyone in here ever felt anointed? It feels good. I've been anointed a couple times in my life. Like when I know, when I know it. A couple weeks ago I was preaching, and, I, and it, I'll just tell you this. In about three-quarters of the way through my message, I felt the Spirit come upon me, maybe stronger than I've ever felt the Spirit come upon me. Stayed till the end of the message, and right into ministry time, and it felt like I could do no wrong during ministry time. Then about 25 minutes into ministry time, it just came off, and I could do less than I normally could before. It feels good to be promoted. It feels good to be vindicated, and it feels really good to be anointed with the Spirit. It's like no wrong, right? So this is all good, right? Standing in front of your brothers, passed over, now accepted, anointed, power. Not only that, but as soon as David gets anointed, he's promoted to the king's house. He's taken from the field to the palace. So while David's working in his field, he gets promoted to the palace. And there's really a word from the Lord in there to us. It's that you don't have to quit your job to get promoted by God. Just go work in your field. Like a lot of us are afraid of work. We think that we have to divorce work to go find our calling in God. You really don't. Just become an expert in your field, and God will pick you out when it's the right time. So David gets taken out of the sheep field... And he gets put, in top, and put inside the king's house. That'd feel pretty good as well, wouldn't it? You'd be like, wow, this is beginning to work. I've got the anointing. I've got power. It feels good. I've been vindicated. Now I'm in the king's house. Not only that, but then David goes and kills the giant, and he gets the king's daughter. And then not only that, but then the girls, all the other girls, other pretty girls, begin to sing songs about David. And this is the song they sing. They sing this little song. They sing, Saul's killed thousands, but David's killed tens of thousands. But it was a prophetic song. It wasn't even true because David had just killed one guy. Feels good, right? Feels good. And then, and then, the king decides he will change his attitude toward David. And it wasn't long before the king is throwing spears at David. Tries to kill him. Then it isn't long until David runs away and the king chases him with 3,000 of his best men. And this goes on for 13 years. And why is the king mad and jealous? The king is mad and jealous because of the anointing that's on his life that feels good. What's the point? The point is this, that with destiny, there is oftentimes difficulty. If anyone in here is going to do anything great, it will come with some difficulty. There's difficulty in destiny. Joseph was in the well, and then he was in prison. Daniel was in the lion's den. David's on the run. And Jesus is on the cross. And then even after David was king, he had a son who raped a sister. His house was often divided. He had a son who raped a sister. And then he had another son who decided he'll take the kingdom from his dad, even though his dad isn't dead, and led all of Israel, especially all of Judah, led them all against their own father. Can you imagine? This is in David's destiny. So there's difficulty in destiny. There's, there's difficulty in our call with God. If it was this way for David, if it was this way for Joseph, if it was this way for Daniel, if it was this way for Jesus, there's a really good chance it'll be this way for us. See, one of the problems is, is that we're raised in a culture and we're taught to, to, to run away from difficulty. We don't run away from difficulty. The anointing is always pointing toward darkness. I'm not saying go, go out with life in a martyr syndrome. We don't want to do that. But I am, say, I am saying this. When we're walking in our calling and things get tough, it's not a time to step back. It's a time to step forward. 
Nothing great ever comes from easy. Great always comes from difficult. If it's easy, then everyone will do it. And if everyone does it, then it's worth nothing. There's a reason that gold is hidden under mountains. There's a reason that diamonds are valuable. They take millions of years to form, and they're usually hidden under mountains where you have to dig with lots of machinery and lots of manpower to extract them from the earth. There's difficulty in destiny. You can turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 22. This is called Down in Adullam. You like that? Down in Adullam? Yeah, this is, uh, if you don't like Down in Adullam, this is also called Down in a Hole, for you Allison Chains fans. And if you don't like Down in a Hole, this is called Life on a Chain, for all you Pete Yorn fans. 1 Samuel 22. Let's look at the first verse there in 1 Samuel 22. 1 Samuel 22 says this. It says, David left Gath, and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. And all those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. So here's the deal. I want to set this up for you a little bit. Um, David is on the run from Saul, and he's also on the run from uh, a Philistine king named Achish. Uh, David was afraid that he was about to be uh, about to be perhaps killed, and so he acts like he goes mad, and he slobbers all over his beard, which would have been really strange. And he acts like a madman. And, and the, the, the king of the king of Gath, Achish, says something really funny. He's like, "Don't I have enough madmen in my own country? Get this guy out of my face!" You know. And so at that point, like, if your enemies won't accept you, then there's no place to go, and David ends up in a hole. And he's literally at his wit's end. He's at his wit's end to the point that he has to take refuge in a cave. Uh, some of you have, have been there. I know you've been there because you've been in, in my office and you've told me about it. Around here we call it the pain cave. Uh, anybody ever been in the pain cave? Like, don't lie, because I've seen you in my office, you know. And this is where David's at. He's in the pain cave. And while he's in the pain cave, um, he's completely alone. But then something really strange happens. Right out of the wilderness, people start to show up and hang out with him. First his family, his, his dad and his mom and his brothers. And then everyone who's de- in debt, everyone who's discontented, and uh, everyone who's in distress comes and uh, hangs, out with, uh, hangs out with David. How would that make you feel? <laughs> You're on the run from Saul, and then the only people who come to hang out with you are like the people who are worse off than you, right? Yeah. But there's a, there's a few things here for us, I think, and here's some takeaways. Um, number one, uh, the kingdom of heaven is always near the broken. This is one of the things we see. The kingdom of heaven is always near the broken, and it's always near the weak. Uh, if, if we were honest in our most honest moments, we would wish it were something different, but it's just not. Uh, a lot of times, the kingdom of heaven is just really near broken people. But here's the real truth of the matter. I want to tell you the full truth. The full truth is the kingdom of heaven is near everyone. It's just that the rich and the well-to-do usually can't see it and usually don't know about it. They're just blinded to it. But I don't know about you, but, there's, but I'm closest to the kingdom of heaven at those moments when I've been the most broken. You know? You know, uh, people who, who, who just want to have nothing to do with God, you know, their firstborn son dies, and what's the first thing they do? They pick up the pastor that they cussed out 20 years ago, Right? Because there's something about brokenness that brings us into contact with the kingdom of heaven. So number one, the kingdom of heaven is almost always nearest to the broken and distressed. Number two, gravity is a powerful thing. 
uh, and, I, and I put this in, in here because a lot of us uh, are called to be leaders. And, uh, and, uh, and one of the things that we want to do, uh, whether we're a leader now or will one day be a leader, or even if we're not a leader now and perhaps we'll never be a leader, um, gravity is a powerful thing because we all want to be associated with the winners. And we all want to be associated with the best. And we all want to be associated with the strong and the well-to-do and the people who have it going on, right? We just do. I mean, if we're just being honest, we just do. And I, I can tell you from, from my own experience that it's, uh, that's who I am. We all want to be associated with the in crowd and the winners. But, it's, um, but a lot of times, I don't know if you've realized this, but God brings us the weak. We want to hang out with the cool kids, but God brings us the weak. Have you ever, have you ever looked at one of your friends and says, I, it seems like I attract weird people. My wife and I never say that. Here's the question. Everybody in here has gravity. Who's coming, to your, who's coming to your gravitational pull? Take some stock. Everybody in here has gravity. Who's coming to your gravitational pull? After you've taken some stock, and you probably won't want to do this later on tonight, but after you take some stock, ask yourself, am I disappointed with who I attract? Because those are actually the people that God's calling you to, to minister to. And a lot of times we're just disappointed with the people we hang out with. And we think, well, I need to, I need to get up a level and then I'll be able to do it. No, you don't need to get up any level. You just need to, you need to realize that the, pay, the place that God's planted you and the people that he's put you around, that's your people. Gravity's a powerful thing. Don't fight it. Don't fight it. Number three, my, my struggles are not just my own struggles. How many of you have ever recognized this, that when you're going through something uh, and you begin to share it a little bit, and the next thing you know, you meet 10 people who are going through the very same thing? Anybody ever experienced that? Yeah, it's the way, it's the, way the world works. And it's the way even that God plans things. Um, one of the things that happens is, is when I have struggle in my life, um, it, it's not as though God says, oh, I want, Adam and Han- I want Hannah to struggle and I want Sam to struggle. It's, it's just that there's, there's trouble built into the world. And so when I become the kind of person who encounters trouble and we all will those troubles that i encounter and those troubles that i overcome are the troubles that i'm called to lead other people out of my struggles are not just my own struggles they're communal and so uh, so there's a really it, it's a balancing act and i do i do want you to hear this pastorally it's a balancing act when we encounter trouble in our life uh, th- there's there's an aspect to trouble that we we want to say no i you know i reject that and we want to pray it off in jesus name you know but then there's another way in which we go we can, we can honestly say in, in, in spiritual maturity, God, thank you for the troubles. Help me, Jesus, because I want to be a freedom fighter, you know? You can't be a freedom fighter unless you've ever been set free of something. You, you, it's just the way it works. Um, one of the things I've noticed around here is that people who have been sexually abused, those are the ones who are most effective at leading others in freedom from sexual abuse. You know, uh, people who, are, who, who have overcome alcoholism, those are the people who are most anointed in getting others free from alcoholism. So my struggles, they're not just my struggles. They're for other people. And then number four, uh, God can change anyone. This is the one that really moves my heart. Because David is out in, the, out in the wilderness. His family comes to him. And then everyone who's in debt and mad at the king comes to him. And there's about 400 men there. And uh, when they first come to him here in 1 Samuel chapter 22, uh, they're, just, they're, they're known by number, 400. And they're known by their troubles. Distressed, in debt, and what's the other word? Discontented. Distressed, discontented, 
and in debt. That's what they're known by. They're known by, they're known by their plight. They're known by their struggle, and they're known by their defeat. But when you flip all the way to the end of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 21, these are the, some of these very same men are David's mighty men. The 30 mighty men, they were here. And what that tells me is that God can change anyone. And what that tells me is this. It tells me that, it tells me that people come to David and they're known by distress, discontent, and in debt. And by the end of 2 Samuel, they're known by name in the Scripture. Listen, great men and women of God never got their name put in the book. If your name is in the book, it's a treasure, you know? It's a treasure. Like, like, like you would die to have your name even in a genealogy. And so by the, by the, in the beginning of David's story, they're unnamed. By the end of the story, they're named. At the beginning of the story, they're known for their defeats and their struggles. By the end of the story, they're known for their victories. And what this tells me is that God can change anyone. He can use the most broken person. He could use. He could use you. He could use you to take you out of brokenness into strength. And he could also use you to take broken people out of broken places and into strong places. Amen? And number five, you go into the cave alone, but you come out in community. You go into the cave alone, but you come out, you come out in community. David goes into the cave alone, but he comes out with 400 people. And one of the things that the Scripture is telling us is this, is that you don't get out of your problems alone. It's impossible. It is absolutely impossible. You can only, you can only get out of your problems to the extent that there's a community around you and that there's some transparency and some willingness to share. Nobody, no one gets out of their issues by trying harder. You, you get out of your issues and you get set free from your issues by sharing them with people. All right, let's turn to Second Samuel, chapter 6. You guys okay? All right, I hope I'm not wearing you down. Second, cha- Second Samuel, I, sp- I speak for a living. Second Samuel, chapter 6, this is called More Than Good Intentions. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000 in all. And he and his men went to some place in Judea to bring up, uh, bring, bring up the ark of God, which is called by name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim of the ark. I'll give you a little backstory here, and then we'll get to some takeaways. The backstory is this, is that for uh, several decades, the ark had been uh, kept at a guy's house named Abinadab, and his son, Eleazar, was put in charge of it. And uh, it occurred to David, he was like, this is not okay. It's not okay for the ark to be way out there. I want to bring it into, the, into Jerusalem, into the, into the capital city. And so he, uh, they, they, bring in, they bring in the ark. They put it on a cart. It's pulled by some ox. And they get some guys to kind of like get around it a little bit because they don't want it to slide off. And then as they're going along, uh, the ox stumble at Nacon's, uh, at Nacon's threshing floor. And the ark makes a big jolt, and it's about to come off. And in that moment, Uzzah, a guy named Uzzah, reaches out to kind of steady the ark, and when he does, he gets struck dead. Heck of a story, right? Uh, and, and here's the other thing you need to see, though. You need to see a giant celebration, okay? We're talking massive. Uh, David is dancing. Uh, the Scripture says that they're playing guitars, and they're playing bass, and they're playing drums, and it's loud, and there's a procession. There's at least 30,000 men 
Uh, there's way more people than that. They're, and they're, everyone's celebrating. And then at Nacon's threshing floor, the ox stumbles. Uzzah reaches out and touches it, and he falls dead to the ground. And then it just gets really awkward. <laughs> you can kind of hear the music slow down, right? Because it's hard to celebrate when you've got the ark of God on the dust and a dead body in the road. I mean, if we're just being honest, right? And at that point, David freaks out, and he, he just says, stop. He just calls a big time out. And they take a three-month time out, and he sends the ark of God to Obed-Edom's house. And someone gets, gets word and sends it back to David and says, hey, David, Obed-Edom's house, his entire house is being incredibly blessed these last three months, and I think it's because the ark of God is there. And David's like, what? We've got to bring it up. And in this moment of what, David, David goes back, and, they, and, they, and they, they find out what's wrong. And uh, what's wrong is the way they handled the ark of God. Uh, they were never supposed to put it on a cart. They were supposed to carry it. They had totally forgotten this. And uh, so they went back. They found out how to handle the ark of God in Exodus. And they do it right, and they bring it on in. And it's a giant celebration. Uh, they, they get, uh, only they add to the celebration this time. Uh, in, to the music and to the dancing, uh, they add, uh, let's, let's kill animals. Every six day, steps, we're going to kill animals, you know. We're going to spill blood. It's going to be, I mean, we're talking it would have been a bloody mess. I mean, it's, it's impossible for us to even capture the size and scope of this and it's also impossible for us to capture just how shocking this is because david is going to dance essentially naked for six miles from obed edom's house to jerusalem all right he's the king and he's in his underwear i mean here's the thing the only analog to this is barack obama in his underwear because jesus is around that's the only analog only it would have been more striking because David had way more power than Barack Obama ever thought about having. It would have been startling. Startling. <clears throat> so here's the takeaway. God's presence is always a reason to celebrate. Like, it's our number one value here. And, and before, on the, on the first trip, there was celebration. On the second trip, there was celebration. And it's the only appropriate response to the presence of God. Like, if I'm just being honest and pastoral as a church, like, I don't trust people who can't celebrate the goodness of God. Like, it, like when I meet people who are just got, like, got hang-ups about worship and got hang-ups about, I'm just like, what? I, I mean, on the inside, I'm going, what? Like, you just don't get it. Like, what the heck? God's presence is always a reason to celebrate. Like, if, if the God of the universe is around, somebody better be coming unglued. Like, it's the only appropriate response. We talk about it all the time. Like, worship is the only appropriate response to anything great. I took River to Rupp Arena, and every time Duran Lamb hit a three-pointer, the place explodes. Why? Because it's great. It's the only appropriate response. God's presence is always a reason to celebrate. Number two, God's presence brings us all to the threshing floor. If you'll remember, in the first part of the story, the ox stumbles at Nacon's threshing floor, and the threshing floor is where they bring their wheat, and, and they, would, they, they would take the sheaves of wheat, and they would smack it on the floor. And what they're doing is they're separating the, the good kernels of wheat from the chaff. And there's something about being in God's presence that brings us all to the threshing floor. If we start hanging out with God, one of the things that will happen is he will separate the wheat, the kernel in your life from the chaff. Every time. It will eventually happen. Uh, you understand that in the Old Testament they have this temple. In the outer court, you could do things. Every, there's a lot of things you can do in the outer court. But the closer that you move in, the more restricted it becomes. 
And the reason it becomes more restricted is because God is just absolutely holy. See, there's the deal. There's things you can do in the outer court that'll get you killed on the inner court. Perfectly legal in the outer court. Perfectly legal. And there's something about having an interaction with the presence of God that brings us to, to Nacon's that brings us to, to Nacon's threshing floor. You hang out with God. The deeper that I go in with God, the more he's going to remove the chaff from my life. Every single time. And it's one of the reasons that I want to go in. I want to go in deeper, and I want to go in deeper, and I want to go in. Jesus has given me access, and I want to go in deeper. And the more I meet with God, the more he's going to, he's going to remove the dross from my life. It's the reason that when Isaiah saw the Lord, he says, I- I've come undone because I've seen the king. You know, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yeah, that's, the, that's, that's the only response when we begin to encounter God's holiness. And number three, God's ways always matter. And they matter more than our good intentions. See, it was good and right that David wanted to bring God's presence into the temple. It was good and right that David wanted to bring God's presence into Jerusalem. But it, what mattered even more than that was how you handle God's presence. See, God's presence was never meant to be attached to the back of the cart. See, the sort of the picture that we get here is attached to the back of the cart. It, it, it's just like attached to the back of our own agendas and plans. Like we'll, add, like, we'll take our agenda and our plan and we'll put God's presence on the back of it. You see that? It's, it's a prophetic picture and it's a prophetic metaphor that's being shown to us. Uh, not only that, but in Exodus it says that God's presence was meant to be carried on poles and it was meant to be rested upon the shoulders of men. See, one of the things that God is saying is, I don't want to be carried on a cart, I want to be carried on people. I want to rest on people. That's a really big deal. God says, I won't, God says I'm not going to anoint someone's plan I will anoint a person. It's one of the reasons that you'll find like people who are not administrative, but they're just crazy anointed and their ministry goes great. And you'll find other people who are really administrative, but they're not very anointed and their ministry doesn't go as great. Because God wants to anoint people. And then number three, a lot of times, uh, a lot of times the way we handle uh, the presence of God has is, is been directly related to what we've seen in culture. What I mean by that is culture ends up uh, di- uh, dictating to us how we handle the presence of God. When, when, the, when the children of Israel brought in uh, the Ark of God on, on, on a cart with ox, they were only doing what they had seen done 40 years ago. Because 40 years earlier, the Philistines said, we've got to get this Ark out of here because it's giving us hemorrhoids. It literally is. It was giving them hemorrhoids. They put, it on, they put it on a cart with two ox, and they ship it off. And so when it came, men of Israel saw the Ark of God traveling on a, on a cart with two oxen. And when they saw that, it predisposed them. In some ways, it blinded them to how the presence of God was supposed to be handled, to how God had said, please handle my presence. And he had written it down in Exodus chapter, I think, 18. He had written it down, and uh, it blinded it to them. And what they ended up doing is when they decided to move the ark again, they they just said, well, we've seen this done before, and it worked. Let's just do that again. And there's a really big deal here. And one of the deals is this, is that God... You know, God will treat unbelievers and believers radically different. Radically different. Like, unbelievers can get away with things that believers just can't. You know, there's a reason. Like, if unbelievers are, like, having premarital sex, God's like, well, yeah, of course they're having premarital sex. They don't know any better, right? But if believers are, it's like different standard, right? One of the things God is saying is, don't put my cart, don't put my ark on a cart. He's saying, please shoulder it. Feel the weight of my presence. Amen? We could camp out here longer, but we've got to go. <clears throat> I could live in Second Samuel chapter 6. I love it. Second Samuel chapter 11, wrong place, wrong time. 
Hey, any one of these, any one of these little sermons could change your life, by the way. All seven of them might actually kill you. This is David and Bathsheba. And the really important verse in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, is verse 1. Look at this. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and they, res- and they besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. And we all know this story, right? So David's at home in Jerusalem and he's hanging out on the palace. He's out on the porch. Like it's a sunny day and so he's under the tent. He's up on the porch and he just stands up while he's drinking his sweet tea and he leans over the edge and what he notices is a really hot woman who's naked and taking a bath. That's what he notices. And David hatches a plan. He's like, this woman is incredibly hot. She's incredibly naked. I will know her. And so he sends for her. It's incredibly bold. It's so unlike David in some ways. He sends for her. And uh, they, bring her, they bring her up to him, and David has sex with her, and he gets her pregnant. Yikes. That's when it hit, at that point, it hit David. Like, the reality just set on him. I've gotten another man's wife pregnant. And so David not only has adultery, but then he makes it way worse, if you guys remember this. He, he, says, uh, he brings Joab in, and he says, Hey, Joab, uh, I need you to do something for me. I need you to take, I need you, I need you to take, I need you to take Bathsheba's husband, who's one of my good friends. And this is, the, this is the part that pains my heart so much. Who's one of my good friends. He's one of the 30 mighty men. And I want, you to, I want you to put him on the front lines. And when you put him on the front lines in the heat of battle, I want you to tell everybody to step away from him so that he'll be killed. And so in the moment, that's what happens. So in the moment, David uh, sleeps with another man's wife. He gets her pregnant. And he has her husband killed. And so he becomes an adulterer, murderer, right at the prime in his life. It's, it's, the, it's the saddest story. It's one of the saddest stories in this whole deal. It's right at the prime of his life. Everything's going really good up to this point. But, but First Samuel, I mean Second Samuel, chapter eleven, verse one, has a really there's a really powerful key in it for us. And the key is this. The key is this: if you're going to win the war, you have to be in the fight. See, David, his entire life up to this point, he had always been on the front lines with his men. Always. It's one of the reasons that his men loved him so much. Cliff talked about this last week. It's one of the reasons that his men loved him is because David wasn't a king who ruled from afar, but he was, a, he, was a, he, was, he was a king who took his duty seriously and he went out on the front lines with the men. But for whatever reason, at this point, David decides to take, take it easy, to retire for a little bit, and to put his feet up. And in that place of, of not being fully engaged with his calling, he got distracted. Uh, one of the things I want to tell you is boredom is a powerful thing. It never leads to anything good either. Boredom never leads to anything good. So, so what am I saying? If you're going to win the war, you have to be in the fight. Um, the other way I can say it is this, is that each of us in the room have to know our call. You absolutely must know your call. If you don't know your call, you'll be deceived. If you don't know your call, you'll be, you'll, you'll, you'll be led astray by, by, the, by the most surface desires of your heart. You have to know your call. Uh, you have to know your call so well that if I were to walk up to you, you could tell me what your call is in 15 seconds. Not only that, but you have to know your call so well. It's not enough to know your call, and it's not enough to be able to tell me what it is in 15 seconds, but you have to be actively engaged in it. I, I can tell you this, uh, as a man who is very weak, um, I am safest, and I am best, and I am most kept when I am hardest at work in ministry. Now, there's an extreme here, okay? I and mean, some people go to the extreme, 
and end up never resting and losing their families because they neglect them. I'm not talking about this. But one of the things I am saying is this, that the safest place for your life is in battle. The safest place is in battle having arrows shot at you. That's the safest place. Whatever your call is, you need to know it, you need to be able to say it, and you've got to be engaged with it. That's where it's safe. One of the things I don't see in Scripture anywhere is retirement. I don't see retirement. Uh, Boredom is a powerful thing. It ruins people's lives. When I'm not engaged, and here's the thing, we will all be engaged in something. We're all, I mean, we're, we're, in our generation especially, my generation and younger, we're a restless people. I won't speak that on the older generation. I can tell you it's true for me. I'm a restless person. And when I'm not engaged, my restlessness grows. And I've never had one great or good thing grow out of restlessness. Never. One chapter over. 2 Samuel chapter 12. When bad news is good news. When bad news is good news. Can I just read? I, I want to read this story to you. Is that okay? Are we, are we okay? Everybody all right? Okay. I want to read this story to you because it's really, really important. This is a big one. It, it, for people who are my age and younger, it's really big. This is one of the biggest stories. We need to get this. All right. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. This is after Nathan, uh, David has been with Bathsheba. And he, and he came to him and he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except a little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it and grew it up with him and his children. It shared his food, it drank from his cup, and it even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are that man. This is what the Lord, the Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house with Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. That's a hardcore word right there. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with your own sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword will never be departed from your house because you despised me and you took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord, this is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before the Lord. And then David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. It's really sad, isn't it? And by the way, this, where the Lord says, I will do this in broad daylight, this happened in broad daylight. David's wives were slept with out on the roof. Everybody saw it. But this is when bad news is good news. Uh, anybody in here like bad news? Mm-mm. Anybody in here like confrontation? Anybody in here like to go and confront people? Really enjoy that? Uh, how about being confronted? Anybody in, any in here like having somebody come and confront you, speak in your life, tell you to get on, get right? Anybody like that? Yeah, here's the deal. None of us like that. None of us enjoy confrontation, and uh, none of us enjoy discipline. Discipline is tough. 
our culture is predisposed to, to rebel against confrontation, to, to rebel against anyone who speaks to us in a, in a corrective way or discipline us. But, um, but the truth of the matter is confrontation and bad news are good news. This is one of those moments in Scripture when bad news is actually good news. This is what the Lord says. I'm just going to read you three scriptures. This is what the Lord says about this. He says in Revelation chapter 3, verse 19, He says, Those I love, I rebuke and discipline. In Proverbs chapter 13, verse 24, it says, It says, The man who spares the rod hates his own son, but he who loves him is careful to discipline him. And then in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, it says, The Lord disciplines those he loves. Some of you are thinking, man, the Lord must really love me, right? I once had a friend who came to me and said, man, the Lord won't let me get away with anything. I just looked at him and I said, it's because he loves you too much. I have, this one, I have this one friend, doesn't matter what he does, he gets busted every time. Like in the most obvious way, he gets ratted out. It won't even like, he can't do anything that the Lord doesn't come and bust him like within two weeks. And one time he came to me, he's like, I just, I feel like, what the heck? The Lord won't let me get away with anything. And then he points to some other friends. He says, well, the Lord, the Lord, that guy, you know him. He, he can do anything. And I said, hey, he just loves you too much. He just loves you too much. See, it's the mercy of God at work when you get busted. And it's the mercy of God at work when you get confronted. You, you might be thinking, well, how is that possible? Well, three things. Number one, confrontation is a sign of hope. See, confrontation is a sign that things can change. Confrontation is always a sign that the person can change. When we're not willing to confront, we've actually given up on the situation. And so when God comes and busts us, and he almost always does this through a person, by the way. So when God comes and busts us, it's a sign that he still, he still has hope for you, and he still has hope for the situation, and he has hope that it'll change. And then number two, uh, see, God is the one person in the universe who can see the beginning from the end, and so he knows the effects of all your actions right now. He knows, he knows the exponential effects of the decisions you make today and yesterday and tomorrow. He knows how that's going to look 20, 25 years from now. See, certain things are really cute when you're two and utterly gross when you're 18. Like, it's perfectly fine for my, uh, my two-year-old niece to poop, in her pi- to poop in her diaper. That's cool. Imagine an 18-year-old, uh, 18-year-old boy wearing a diaper and pooping in his pants. That's gross. <laughs> see, God can, but he's the one person who can see the beginning from the end. And so he knows, he knows how our actions affect the future, positive and negative. And then number three, see, the mercy of God is only available for the person who's willing to repent. And God knows this. Like, like it's not that he's unwilling to give it. It's that until you repent, you're unwilling to take it. And so he comes and confronts. A couple other things I want you to notice. I want you to notice that that even King David had a voice in his life. Even King David had a voice in his life. Like, how do I feel when, when, when somebody disagrees with me? These are just like little reflective questions. How do I feel when somebody disagrees with me? I want to say something about Nathan, who was able to confront David. I want you to understand that Nathan, Nathan spent his whole life being an encourager to David. And that's one of the things that gave Nathan the foundation and the right to be able to come and confront David. There can, a lot of this can be abused, but even David had someone in his life 
And Nathan spent his whole life being, being a helper and an encourager to David. If you go back, like, like Nathan, Nathan's there when David gets anointed as king over, over the whole kingdom. And he, and he speaks the word over him. And David had another prophet named Gad. And Gad would say, don't do this, do that. It's really important. Proverbs say this. They say that the word, wounds from a friend can be trusted. And so one of the things I want to I say to us, especially people who are my age and younger, is that every one of us in the room needs a Nathan in your life. You need a Nathan in your life. Uh, no, one is above, no one is above correction. Not even me. Like I have people in my life who can come and, and speak to me. And they do. Like, and it's not uncommon. It's like pretty common. Like, what's up with that? No one, no one is above correction. And here's the reason we're not, no one is above correction. It's because the truth is we're not all that self-aware. You realize Nathan comes to David and says, tells him this story. And the reason that Nathan tells David a story is because he's actually testing uh, the depth to which deception has begun to sink into David. So he didn't just come to say that David and say, you've been sleeping with Bathsheba, and I know it because the Lord told me. No, he told him a story, and he wanted to see how self-aware David was and how far the deception had gone in his heart. David, the deception had gone so deep in his heart, and there had been such a, a covering up of this, of this wickedness, that when David is hearing the story, he's unable to realize that it's a story about him, and he says, let's kill the man, right? He's unaware. And David should have known that it was about him because any other time that we see Nathan with David in the scriptures, it's always about him. It's one of the things about deception. It's one of the things about sin. It has this exponential ability to deceive ourselves and blind ourselves. We're not all that that self-aware. Everybody needs a person or two in your life. You need, you won't won't be able to hit your mark unless you have somebody who, who who can come to you and say, hey, What's up with that? And it's not just like correction like you've been bad. Sometimes it's correction like, dude, you can do so much more. I see so much more for you. It it goes in lots of directions. Bad news is not always bad news. Sometimes bad news is good news. It's the only way sometimes we can become connected to the mercy of God. One last thing here and then we'll be done. Killing giants. 1 Samuel chapter 21. 2 Samuel chapter 21. I can't keep it together. There's a piece of scripture in here that's just ridiculous. Um, Look at verse 15. Is it cool? Can I read a little bit more to you guys? All right. All right, cool. I want to read a few verses to you. Uh, verse 15, chapter 21, says this. It says, Once again there was a battle between the Philistines and Israel. David went down with his men to fight against the Philistines, and he became exhausted. And Ishbi Benob, one of the descendants of Rapha, whose bronze spearhead weighed more than 300 shekels, and who was armed with a new sword, said he would kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruah, came to David's rescue, and he struck the Philistine down and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, saying, Never again will you go out with us to battle, so that the lamp of Israel will not be extinguished. Here's one of the things I want you to know. This guy, that, this guy two guys here, this Philistine guy named uh, Ishbi Benob was actually a giant, and he was, he was from Goliath's family. And this other guy named Abishai goes out and kills him. All right? How many dead giants do we have now? How many? We've got two, right? 
David killed one, right? He killed Goliath. He killed the first one. Now we've got another dead giant. Now look, look at verse 18. In the course of time, there was another battle with the Philistines at Gob. At this time, Sebekai, I don't know, Sebekai, whatever he is, killed Saph, one of the descendants of Rapha. Killed another giant. Three giants dead. In another battle with the Philistines, Elhanan, the Bethlehemite, killed Goliath the Gittite. This is actually Goliath's brother who had a spear with a shaft like a weaver's rod. How many dead giants do we have now? Four, okay. Still another battle which took place, Gath, there was a huge man with six fingers on each hand and six toes, 24 in all, and he was descended from Rapha. And when he taught in Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimea, David's brother, killed him. So David's nephew goes out and kills another giant. How many dead giants do we have now? Okay, it gets better. If you want to, you can turn in uh, chapter 23 and look at, look at verse 20. Benaiah, the son of Jehodia, was a valiant fighter who performed great exploits. And he struck down two of Moab's best men. And he also went down into a pit on a snowy day and he killed a lion. And he struck down a huge Egyptian. And all the Egyptian had a spear in his hand. Benaiah went against him with a club and he snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and he killed him with his own spear. How many, how many giants do we have dead now? Six. Uh, in First Chronicles, it tells us this, that this Egyptian was over seven and a half feet tall. Big dude. Big dude. This is, this is Abishai. Dead. Manute bowl. <laughs> this is the guy with all the fingers and toes. I've been... They don't tell his name, but I've been telling my kids his name is Chicken Fingers. I love this part of the story. It's, it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. And, and here's why it's so incredible. Uh, how many of you would like to kill a giant? Well, if you want to kill a giant, you've got to go hang out with a giant killer. And it's one of the things that we see in the scripture. David wasn't the only guy who killed giants. It was the guys who hung out with David ended up killing giants. So David kills Goliath, and then he opens up a way, and there's something about David's leadership. There's something about who he was that imparted, like the same courage and anointing and strength and fearlessness and determination and mission that was on his life, it got on people around him. And by the way, these are the guys who, when they came to him, were distressed, discontented, and in debt. And they, and they end up, life, killing giants. See, one of the things that the Scripture tells us is, it isn't great leadership if I go out and do great things. That's not great leadership. Great leadership is when I go out and do great things, fight for the brokenhearted, love God, worship Him like crazy, and then do it in such a way 
that the people who are around me do the same thing. That's what, that's what great leadership is. Um, see, David's calling was to rid Israel of her enemies, and his followers were living out of that call. And one of the things I'll tell you, as you move into leadership, one of the things that's so prevalent and so common and prominent around leadership is this, is that as leaders, we're predisposed to being afraid of the people who do it as well or maybe better than we do. And what we end up doing is we end up marginalizing that person and we try to get them out of our house as quick as we can. That's not the way the kingdom of heaven works. The kingdom of heaven works like this. Uh, God puts his anointing on me. When the anointing comes upon me, I'm, I'm, I'm able, uh, there's always a mission connected to the anointing. And so I'm able to move in my life call and I'm able to move with effectiveness. And when that happens, uh, I'm not just called to move in effectiveness. I'm not just called to move in the anointing. I'm not just called to move in my mission, but I'm called to raise up a people around me who can do the very same thing. And I'm not called to marginalize people who begin to do it better than me. I'm, I'm called to welcome them in my house, give them my platform, and push them. And if they want to go away, then great. But if they want to stay, let's just stay. See, a lot of times uh, leaders are the most paranoid people in the entire world. And, and this is what happens. When, you, when we embrace a protectionist mindset, we diminish our future. Because those behind us have to be allowed to go higher. See, when we, when we take on a protectionist mindset, what we end up doing is diminishing our future because those behind us have to be allowed to go higher. If the people who are behind us are never allowed to go higher, what we're actually doing is we're driving the bus into the ditch. What we're saying is that the, the, only, the level of... We are unwilling to accept excellence beyond what we're actually able to obtain. And in fact, what we end up doing is we diminish it in such a way that people are only allowed to do things not quite as good as we do. And so when we die, we leave the kingdom sphere that we've been given influence over in a worse position than when we came. That's not the kingdom of heaven. We have to be giant killers who train giant killers. And I, I love it. Uh, I, I love it because last week I took the band and we went on tour. And uh, I took Bobby and I took Hannah and I took Sam and I took Glenn and I took Patrick and I took, Nat, and I took Matt. And we weren't here at all on Sunday morning. And I felt it. But then by 2 o'clock on Sunday afternoon, my phone is blowing up with people telling me how Kendall and Cliff completely killed it. Like, we left, and church didn't miss a beat. Like, not even a beat. That's the way it's supposed to be. That's what real church is. Like, we've got to be giant killers. We've got to train giant killers. That was, that was probably the best moment I had uh, in the last six months, is last Sunday afternoon, getting one phone call after another. <laughs> telling me how good Kendall and Justin and Cliff did. It was just, it was, my phone was blowing up. People were like, it was so good. And I listened to Cliff's message. It's one of the best messages here in six months. And I had nothing to do with it other than we give him a platform, train him a little bit, turn him loose. That's what kingdom of heaven ministry. And this isn't about saying I'm doing it great. I'm just trying to outline for you. This is what it looks like. Because when you begin to do something great, you'll, that gravity thing kicks in again and those people around you. If you're anointed at all, they'll, be doing, they'll begin to do great things. And if you don't watch your heart, if you don't watch the culture of your heart, you'll begin to, you'll begin to uh, look, for, look for reasons to divide from the people that are actually around you right now. That puts a cap on the future. See, Moses had Joshua, Paul had Timothy, Jesus had the twelve, David had his mighty men. The question tonight is like, who do you have? Like, who do you have? Not only that, but who has you? It, it actually works both ways. This is one of the words the Lord gave me a long time ago. 
Well, it's every person's called to be a garden and a gardener. So we need people, we need Nathans who are speaking into our life, correction and vision. See, Nathan didn't just speak correction, he spoke vision. We need Nathans who speak vision and correction into our life. If you don't have both, you won't make it far. If you just have people who just speak vision in your life, you'll think you're great. You need people who can speak correction in your life as well. But, but not only that, I don't even know what I'm talking about now. I have no idea. But yeah, we, we, need, to be, we need to be raising people up. I have no idea what I'm talking about. I just went, woo, shut down. That was a good shutdown. But we have to be raising people up. And, and the reason that we have to be raising people up and teaching them and allowing them to do what we do and allowing people to, do, to, to be better is because uh, one of the things I see in the scripture that we were just reading here about all the giants is, um, is that like, the devil, he's propagating giants. Like, he, he's not going to quit propagating giants, right? You know? David killed giant. You think, well, he cut, cut Goliath's head off. Okay, we've dealt with the giant problem, right? No. He killed the giant and upsprang six more. See, one of the reasons that happens is because God wants, God wants, us, to, God wants us to be, God wants us to, he will, he will use our enemies to keep us under the kind of pressure that, that creates kingdom culture. Hear that with some wisdom, okay? That's not a fatalistic word. Hear that with some wisdom. But God will use our enemies to keep us with the kind of pressure so that we will, we will develop right kingdom culture, raise people up. Like the devils, I mean, there are giants everywhere. I mean, you realize that there are still all kinds of giants in the world? And somebody needs to go kill them. Like abortion, that's a giant. And it's not okay. It's huge. It rules in this land. It taunts the church. It taunts the people of God. Every election, it taunts. And here's the other part, too. Uh, If we think that the the Republicans have it right on this issue, we're utterly deceived. Because at this point, the Republicans are just using uh, abortion as an issue so that they can have our votes. No No one's really moving with any bravery about the issue. No one says, no one's saying this issue has defied the armies of God and, and says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine and let's go out and get it. You realize that like drug culture is a giant in our land? You realize that like, uh, Hannah and I can tell you this because we work at the health food store. You realize, we, we meet so many people in our community who are completely addicted to drugs. And I'm not talking about a little bit, I'm talking about a lot. And I'm talking about like moms, like soccer moms, completely addicted to prescription painkillers. And it's a, it's a giant in their life. And the reason that it's such a giant is because the doctor gave it to them so they think it's okay. No, I need it. Like, I've got a prescription that says I need it. So I need, the, I need this, you know? I can, I can, ha- I can take Lortabs because, because I have a prescription that says I can. And people end up wasting their whole life trying to get a Lortab, literally. Like, I've met so many people. Like, there's, there's a woman that I spent quite a bit of time with who... I gave her like months and she's just wasted literally eight years of her life over a lore tab. I'm not joking. Went to prison. Been to rehab three and four times. Drug culture is a giant in our, in our day. It, it, it ruins entire families. Pornography is a huge giant. It taunts the young men in America. And now it's beginning to taunt the young women in America. See, we used to think this was, this was just an issue for the guys. It's actually one of the things we're finding out. It's an issue with the girls. You realize I've had several girls confess pornography issues in my office this year. One of the things that I was watching an Oprah episode uh, early last year, and one of the things that they, uh, it was an episode about pornography, and literally 30% of women watch pornography once a month in America right now. There's more money made on pornography in America right now than 
pro basketball, pro baseball, and pro football combined. And those are multi-billion dollar industries. Those are giants. Yeah. And one of the reasons that the church has been ineffective in dealing with the giants is because we've had leadership that doesn't allow other people around them to do great things. So I just want to tell you, as a pastor of church, everybody in here is free to go and do great things. Like, if you go and do it better than me, you're not going to see me get all bent out of shape. And if I do get it bent out of shape, I know the Lord's good and he'll send a Nathan to me. Because I've just, I, I'm committed in my heart to seeing you guys do great things. And as you guys go and do great things, the gravity effect is going to begin to take hold in your life. And when gravity begins to take hold, you need to guard in your heart, watch over your life, and make sure that you don't begin to build a culture where people are only allowed to do less, less cool things than you're allowed to do. Amen? Amen. All right, that's all I have to say. Why don't we do this? I just want to, I want to pray for us. Why don't we stand up tonight? I know that was long. I just want to pray for us all tonight. Um,